went fishing with Morgan yesterday, and <laughs> uh, background of the story is, I don't know that I got him into it, but I certainly have been kind of his mentor in it over the years, and I've got the law of 10,000 hours going for me in fly fishing. Uh, I just put in a lot of time over the years. So when I wasn't catching anything, you know, I look down river and I, I'm feeling bad for Morgan. I'm like, oh man, if I'm not doing well, you know, he's definitely not doing well. And, yes. and uh, we kind of hit that midway point where you come back together and connect and sit down at the truck and have lunch and figure out what you're going to do for the rest of the day. And I'm like, hey, so how's it going? You know, ready to share my stories of woe that not only did I not catch a fish, I didn't see a fish. I didn't, I didn't scare a fish. I didn't, you know, nothing. It was just barren um, on a, on a frankly, a weekday that should have been pretty phenomenal. And uh, he's like, oh, great. Oh, I was awesome, awesome time. And he doesn't know yet what I'm going to share. So he's all buoyant and like, yeah, you know, caught a number of fish. Some of them were really fun to catch. And, and, uh, and then this one really big one at the end. And what I am so, I am so embarrassed to admit this, but I had a really hard time rejoicing with those who rejoice. Yes. The instant thing that reared itself in my heart was, what about me? God, universe, world, you know, river. Well, what about me? Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. John and Blaine Eldridge here, uh, picking up in the third part of a series on envy. Really glad to have you with us. Really, really important series. Got some killer things for you today. If you haven't tracked with us on this particular series, really want to encourage you um, afterwards to go back and pick up that podcast or maybe maybe pause here and, and go listen to the first two because we, we are building through some thoughts and laying some foundation uh, on some things. And we've been talking about the nature of envy the culture of envy that we live in. We've been talking about the warfare of envy, which I think may be actually one of the most surprising and critical pieces of what we have to say. Um, I don't know that most people, even very like spiritually attuned people to warfare-type issues, really appreciate just how horrible envy is and how much devouring it allows in. And of course, that was last time. And this week, we're going to pick up in, in kind of a, a little bit of a different direction. We, we're, we're laying foundation stones for this conversation, and there's a really, really big one. It might even be the cornerstone for the conversation, and it's illustrated in that question, well, what about me? Yes, talking about, of course, the self, which I think it's fascinating that we actually need a little definition of the self. Because literally for about the first 1900 years of Christianity, it was understood that the self's pride was one of the core issues of the person in the world. And so the idea that, you know, the language of die to self would be much more rich. But in today's cultural climate, it is so accepted as not only normal, but like appropriate to have a self and to privilege the self that we're like kind of fighting against a lot in this conversation. But I was reading 
getting ready for this back in some C.S. Lewis. And in his essay, Two Ways with the Self, he just has this great introduction of what the self actually is. And I love, uh, I love that essay, by the way. Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, I have your book, so if you're missing it. Oh, that's where, that's where it went. <laughs> yeah, you underlined a lot. Lewis writes, Now, the self can be regarded in two ways. On the one hand, it is God's creature, an occasion of love and rejoicing, now indeed hateful in condition, but to be pitied and healed. On the other hand, it is that one self of all others which is called I, and me, and which on that ground puts forward an irrational claim to preference. This claim is to be not only hated, mm. but simply killed. Never, as George MacDonald says, to be allowed a moment's respite from eternal death. Okay, so a strong cup of coffee there. It's so true. Um, on the one hand, something to be pitied, and healed and brought to Christ somewhere else. I think it is in McDonald. He says, God has given us a self so that we might have something to give back to him. But when we let the self kind of reign as the preeminent, cherished, beloved monarch of our lives, I wonder if you couldn't trace that back to all the seven deadly sins. Gluttony, pride, avarice, wrath, you know, it probably is actually all rooted in allowing the self to carry on as if it were the tyrant of the world in us. Yes. Even going back to original sin, you have the issue at stake there where both Adam and Eve accept the proposition why should I not be like God? It's kind of the ultimate privileging mm. of the self in the world of the, mm. if there is greatness available, I want it. If I have to choose between myself and others, I will always choose myself as the Lord of my life. Mm -hmm. Now, gang, this all begins very, very subtly. We've talked about how absolutely damaging envy can be, but it doesn't, it doesn't begin with leveling civilization out of a just wrath that, you know, why should others have what I don't have? It begins with, well, what about me? And one of the places I'd notice operate most, this cherished self, this is in conversation with people. Mm. We had family visiting this last weekend. And when family visits, it's story time, right? How have you been? What have you been doing? What are the kids up to? Here's what we've been up to. Oh, did you hear about uncle so-and-so? Or, you know, it's story time, right? And I was just so embarrassed. I was fascinated. We, we were sitting around the dinner table and I was watching myself waiting to be asked. Mm. I mean, don't you do this? Like you get in conversations, you kind of wait for your turn. You know, you ask someone, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Honestly, what you're really hoping for is the turn in the conversation where they ask you. Yes. It's really interesting because you say it starts slowly as Lewis just indicates, there's a moment at the beginning where you can actually turn that desire to the Father because there is that pity, that love, mm -hmm. uh, that rejoicing of the heart going, what about me? Sure. Like, there's a real yes. desire to be an yes. object of love, but it moves 
so quickly into, in my heart, it arrives almost immediately about, what about me? <laughs> okay, so we, we quoted Dorothy Sayers, who's got this um, wonderful lecture she gave back in the 40s on the seven deadly sins. And regarding envy, she says, it begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? Okay, so there's that very first initial subtle, yes. well, well, what about me, right? Which, depending on where you take that, can, can take you to heaven or to hell. I mean, that yes. can take you to God. That can take you to good things. But hang on. It ends, she goes on to say, by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? And then, so fascinating that she names this. She says, the words constantly in its mouth are my rights and my wrongs. And so, gang, what we're trying to, to kind of clarify and unpack and lay out here in, in this part of the series is the offended self is the fertile soil of envy. I was actually going to start the podcast with, with sort of begging the question. I wanted to say, okay, Blaine, what do these things have in common? <laughs> the um, last presidential election, the crazy amount of social media hatred, the justice movement, and envy. Yes. Wait for it. The self. <laughs> it's the offended self. Yes. You can see it in our politics. I mean, politics is not about the common good. It's just not. It, it's, you know, we, we talk about special interest groups. Well, the whole thing is driven by self-interest, you know. It's who can you get mad enough to join your side against the, all the other guys, right? Yes. And, and it's, it's almost all self-appeal, ultimately, right? They're doing this to our country. They're doing that to our, you know, but it's really... You know, aren't you offended? And it's so crazy because we live in a moment, and I know we'll probably get to this more in a minute, but it's it's masquerading as equality. And that's one of the great ironies of the self because we're not actually talking about kind of the Buddhist erasure of the self into the universe. Like, there are real alternatives. But what we have right now ironically, is that the self, in prioritizing itself, chooses to eliminate all difference because variety and even contrast is kind of necessarily qualitative. I mean, like, yeah, there's, there are. And seemingly unjust. Yes. Right? And so you have, as you were just saying, to go through those, like, it's fascinating that the social justice movement is very often so much motivated by a variety of, look at those people who are doing that thing, like, that's not allowed, but also, like, this identity shouldn't be touched. And, like, you cannot touch or talk about the relative worthiness of a person's position in the world. Right, right. And that, and that there even could be inequality of status based on, for example, your character, right? Yeah. Or, or your appointed calling by God or, or your gifting. But see, it's a fascinating thing. 
I was trying to connect those four things, the, the online hatred, the last presidential election, social justice and envy and going, how could those possibly be connected, particularly social justice, because it feels so good and right. I mean, my goodness, I my cereal, the, the box of my cereal is all about give back. Here's what we're doing to give back to the world, you know, but if you buy this cereal, we're donating so much to education. And and then I open my blueberry, my blueberries, this is, this is, this is blueberries. Yes. But even on the little box of blueberries, it's talking about giving back and doing right for the world. Like, so this is really, really big. But 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 there is a dark underbelly to it. Mm-hmm. And part of it has to do with we are so furious that justice is not being given to us, that when we see it taking place elsewhere in the world. Like, we're ready to, you know, rage and bring down that government and, you know, Coney 2012 and, you know, the Arab Spring and whatever it is, right? It's like, we're ready to bring down all despots. But frankly, don't you see that that's kind of fueled by this? And what about me? And if you need to prove it, if you need a test in your hand, just imagine going back to any of those movements and going like, um, you know, that's worthwhile, but I don't personally feel like jumping in on the movement to change education and the kind of uh, irate rage at the fact that you would not be compelled into every single, in quotes, justice movement totally reveals that we're not actually being motivated by love or by restoration, like we're taking the self's counterfeit, which is uh, equality, which is equalness, but, you know. Yes, picked up a book by a British uh, social commentary and a guy who used to write for a number of American publications, Henry Fairley, published back in the 70s, entitled The Seven Deadly Sins Today. One of the things that Fairley does really well is talk about envy in its social implications. Okay. He says this, one of the destructive forms that envy takes today is the widespread assumption that everyone should be able to do and experience and enjoy everything that everyone else can do and experience and enjoy. Can you just feel that, well, yeah, right? That thing in us? Yes. It's so fascinating. Even just to jump in right there, actually last night, for whatever reason, reading uh, the creation story in Genesis. And there was a thing this particular time was just fascinating to me. And it is the variety that is so emphasized in that story. And in response, like envy is almost the ultimate renunciation of the way that the world is made. Because as God is going through, he's like, And these trees will produce fruit and seeds in their kind and reproduce in theirs. And there's like this proliferation of uniqueness, of special abilities. And that is so different than what Henry Fairley is just describing of everyone should be able to do everything. Everything should be the same, which is not actually how God has made the world, literally. Like, it's not how the world is made. Nor is it what equality means or what even justice means. So we'll get there, gang. But we're just trying to flush right now, and you can feel it rising in you, I bet. It's this 
the self and the self asserting its rights, you know. So Fairley goes on to say, we are today surrounded by young people who think they are artists and poets because they think they have the right to be artists and poets. They dabble and daub with no talent. It would be hard to count the number of them who, in the absence of a talent to write or paint, foist themselves on us as filmmakers who have taken up photography as an art form that will nevertheless bring a commercial reward as well. They are artists, have a right to be artists, and must be acknowledged as artists. The United States and other Western societies are not pitting equals against equals, but unequals against unequals as if they are equals. This is a distortion of the idea of equality, and it is a distortion as much as anything else that has enabled the enemies of a genuine equality to move to the offensive. To pit unequals against unequals as if they are equals is to make a breeding ground for envy. And this is back to that idea of, well, why don't I have the right to put my stuff out there and have it as, as celebrated as anyone else's? Who are you to say what's art? Who are you to say what's good? You see, it's that, yes, it's the triumph of the little dictator, the self, right? So let me finish the, the paragraph here. He says, the idea that we are equal has been perverted into the idea that we are identical. And then we find that we cannot all do and experience and enjoy the things that others do and experience and enjoy. So we take our revenge and deny that they were worth doing and experiencing and enjoying in the first place. You know, you yes. begin to see envy work its way in. But but what you see in, in is the triumph of the offended self. It was so interesting. I know I mentioned before the Scandinavian law of equality and the tall poppy syndrome. Couldn't remember what it was called, so I went back and looked it up, and it's the law of Yanta, and it was introduced by this fellow, Axel Sandomas, in a novel, but he was pretty clear that he believed he was actually just pointing out what had been culturally uh, proliferating in Scandinavia for some time. And he laid out kind of the 10 laws of this kind of equality, of this renunciation of difference. And they are fascinating because they literally are put as phrases like, you think you have something to teach us? You think you are better than us? You, and there are like 10 of them. And then he concludes with this possible 11th that's so fascinating. And it's, you think that we don't know anything about you? Where there's both this, how dare you think that you would actually have kind of a better way to come in and teach us? Like, what's wrong with my way? Like, it's a ridiculous statement, actually, if you look at the world. Like, there are better and worse ways to make tables, but still the self is just my way is as good. Yes. But then there's that final thing also, which is, that external move then to destroy, which we've been talking about with, with envy, but it's there of, you know, if you come in and try to instruct in a better way to do anything, a justice movement, write a novel, a better way possibly to think about loving your wife, watch and see the impulse of people to find something wrong in that teacher. Yes. And they'll go, and you, don't, you think we don't know something about you? If your way is actually better, and we can't logically defend 
that we are as good a musician or as good a parent, we'll take the next best, which is just to say that that person isn't actually a very good person to begin with. Exactly. It's the revenge of the offended self. Yes. And and what we were talking about, um, those of you who've been tracking with the series, is the radical egalitarianism of the culture it is so utterly opposed to the gospel. And, you know, you have the offense of the cross, right? That, I mean, to try and go out to the world today and say, you actually are a sinner and have no rights to claim before God, but in his love and mercy, he has sacrificed himself for you. It's so offensive to the little dictator yes. self, right? And I was reading the end of Matthew last night, Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom. Matthew uh, 13, 53 picks up, when Jesus had finished saying these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Now, the, the, the thing is, you don't hear delight in that, like, oh, how wonderful, Joseph and Mary's son, he's, he's finally made something of himself, you know? Yes. How, look at the wonderful things he's doing. That's not what you get. Listen to this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Mm. His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Shh. Like, yikes, gang. Like, do you, do you hear the offended self? Okay. And, and the reason that we're driving into this from, you know, seven different angles is because the offended self is the breeding ground for envy. I think the triumph of the offended self is how you could describe everything taking place in culture right now. Fascinating. Like, presidential elections, the justice movement, all of it. What we have now and what we celebrate and lift up. I mean, we're not talking about something that people are embarrassed by, right? It, my rights, my wrongs, how dare you? What about me? Like, we have actually exalted the offended self to the place of supremacy. And if you want to test that, go ahead and just go Google self-quotes just those two words, and see what comes up. It is uh, equal parts appalling and nauseating <laughs> because you know what you get. It's every variety of you are wonderful, you are powerful, the you in the world is the irrevocable center of a destiny. And you're like, holy what? Yeah. Like, that's a crazy claim, and I don't <laughs> think that's true. <laughs> Yeah, not only untrue, but very dangerous. But of course, okay, so the other classic example would just be the victim mentality, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody knows now that if you want to attain any sort of social status, if you want to secure any kind of public policy in your advantage, you have to present yourself as victim, right? We are the victimized what? You know, the undereducated, we've been left out, we didn't get our portion of the pie. It's just astounding how many variations of the victim group we've been able to come up with in the world. Yes. Because everyone's figured out that the victim has the moral high ground. And again, it, 
gang, we're not saying that we don't believe in justice. We're not saying that we don't believe in fair treatment and, and even equal opportunity. We do believe in those things. Yes. We just don't believe that God has equally distributed talent, for example. He hasn't equally distributed calling. Or made one kind of human being in endless repetition. Like, he's actually made artists and leaders, and the gifts of the people participating in a community are laid out over and over again in the New Testament as varieties of gifting. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the parable that Blaine um, brought up in our first podcast, a couple chapters later in Matthew 20, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And I want to read this again for us because the, the gospel is so countercultural. It's so alarming. And its ability to flush and surface the offended self um, and its ability to address it. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them to work. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went on again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and still found guys standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And they said, because no one's hired us. And he said, well, go work in my vineyard. Okay. Then the plot thickens, right? The tension grows. This is where the soundtrack would shift. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers together and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. See, the offended self is beginning to show up. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I'm generous. Ouch! Oh, oh just, man. There's something in me that has a really hard time with this parable. Yes. Right? Now, just quickly apply it to salvation. Those who had the privilege and the luxury and the, and the beauty and the, all the rich gifts of growing up in a Christian home, and they've known Christ ever since their childhood and served him and loved him. And, and then you get the woman who's, you know, rescued from, from a horrible life of trafficking and someone shares the gospel with her and, and she gets to step into the kingdom as well. Don't you want both of them in heaven? My mind goes right to some of the final scenes of C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces. The protagonist has, for the duration of the novel, been making her case against God by telling the story of her life and her perceived unfair treatment. And at the very end, she's actually being ushered into uh, the courtroom, the kind of heavenly court. And she's told not to worry. She goes in and she's told, 
whatever you get, you won't get justice. And she asks her guide, but is God not just? And he goes, oh, no. How would it be for us if he was? We want justice and are offended at generosity. And yet, the only thing we have to stand on is the generosity of the kingdom, is the Mm. logic of invitation. And grace. Yes. And grace and grace. So here's what we are offended by. We are offended by the unequal distribution of gifts and birth and opportunity. I'm sad to say I've been I've just been watching people react to good news. You just just, you know, in your small group and in your church, you know, out in the foyer, wherever, just different at work the water cooler, just different places, family gatherings. Just watch people react to someone else's good news. Friend of ours, younger woman, um, recently got pregnant. And of course, she and her husband are so excited. Out of the corner of my eye, I was watching some of the other women at this particular social gathering, and they did not rejoice. They did Now, they faked it, right, when it was their turn you know, to say something positive, but I saw their countenances fall at first. Why not me? Right. And the same thing with employment. You know, somebody lands a killer job or they come back to the small group and say, I finally found my calling. God opened this incredible opportunity and I actually get to work in my gifting. And just watch people react to that. Yeah, it's painful. I can, I'm just thinking of, Uh, A friend came through town recently, an old college buddy. Uh, He's a talented poet, which is kind of nice for me because I don't write poetry, so I feel like we're not in competition. But he also just has enormous success getting published. Like, people pick up his work kind of all the time and just kind of talking about, you know, some of the journals recently that he was excited, like, oh, this happened. And I totally see just the twist in me of like, why isn't my work being published? And what I feel like I want to hold up that line to so many places in my life and actually just let God ask me, like, you know, I see my friends buy a new beautiful house. Yeah. And and I go like, man, I kind of feel like I work just as hard as that guy. And just let Jesus ask, are you offended because I'm generous? And a friend who I kind of like think is irritating and yet his work does well. And just let God ask my heart, like, are you offended because I'm generous. Even your fishing story, a couple summers ago, Luke and I were out, and I kind of feel like I'm a better fisherman than Luke, because <laughs> I'm at least, like, more committed than he is. And, like, uh, he was, there was not a fish in this creek he didn't catch. It was a crazy day anyway. Like, we, I mean, our numbers were so high, it was silly. But I caught, like, 25 fish over the course of this day, and then Luke comes back, and he's like, I caught 40. And, like, just my, like, oh, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> like, but to let... I think to let my heart respond to God's question of, are you offended that I'm generous here? Yeah, exactly. So, gang, what we're identifying is the fertile soil of envy is the offended self. And then our culture just exalts it. Like the offended self literally is the ruling personality on social media. And, you know, we cited some research data last time that people who spend more time on social media actually have higher levels of envy and higher levels of depression. And you just want to go, well, well, why can't you just rejoice? 
when you see someone post a picture of their, you know, family vacation or, you know, here's their photo of of the new car they just got or the son or daughter graduating from college, why can't you just rejoice with that? It's the offended self. Yes. And and one of the really tragic things, and I do want to be kind here because I'm very aware of it in my own life, suffering suffering is a very dangerous ground for envy. Painful things people are going through, you know, a couple going through infertility or someone in chronic physical pain and that sort of thing. And I get it. I get it. What about me? If we can bring that to God, if we can bring the self to God, if we can bring all those aches and longings to God, and and yes, you know, people's success does provoke longing in us, but rather than shifting to envy, to to bring that to God and, and let him love and speak and minister to us. Yeah, it just makes me think of everyone loves the parable or else hates the parable of the prodigal son, but it's the returning son whose story is emphasized when, you know, frankly, everybody is the older brother. Like yeah. everyone is the one who watches the feast unfold and then who says to the father, like, I've been working hard. I've been here for you. Like, you know, where's my banquet? And But you see what develops between the father and his son is this very intimate, like, well, do you notice that you haven't asked? Do you notice that you're trying to get the reward of closeness with me without closeness with me? Like, all that's there. Oh, he says to him the most tender thing. He says, son, everything I have has always been yours. Like, you're not unequally loved. Yes. You are not unequally chosen. You are not unequally out of my affection, my eyesight, my care. The other thing I want to just emphasize in this conversation about the self is, like, we're actually not talking about as a solution, like a renunciation of the self. Exactly. We're not talking about the dissolution of all selves into some kind of, you know, celestial soup. But in another essay, you know, this is just C.S. Lewis's day here at the podcast. It's not even an essay. It is a paragraph that he seems to have written in kind of an aside moment. It's called Three Kinds of Men. And he goes, you know, everyone in the world can basically be boiled down into one of three categories. The first, there are people who functionally seek their own pleasure, their own joy, And they will only seek the pleasure of another up until the point where it requires real sacrifice from them, at which point they won't. So even if they're helping others, they're functionally, type one, seek their own pleasure. Type two, he says that there are also people who acknowledge that there are some claims on their time. It it might be the community, it might be the nation, it might be God, but, you know, this is that neighbor I think everybody has who, like, keeps his lawn super clean and is like really duteous in certain areas. But if you were to ask him for a generous act, you'd just see like, yes, he's he's acknowledging that there are certain areas where he has to act in a generous way. And then I just love this. He goes, uh, the third kind of people, Lewis writes, have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, made into a new thing. Again, not talking about the elimination of the self. Like, actually, the kingdom of God has the restoration of the self into this 
both very alive and very obedient, and that's probably a whole other podcast, but there just is the hopeful thing out there of like, Jesus has a self, but he has a self that only does what he sees the Father doing, and he's yes. generous and yes. uh, like fun, yes. and that, that, is, that yeah. is the alternative, not radical equality or dissolution. Yeah, or, or some sort of um, angry turning on the self. Yeah. To, to kill the self out of some sort of vengeance, even vengeance against God. Yeah. Right? So, gang, we're going we're gonna to pick this up next time. We've got so much more to cover here, including what do you do with the self. But what we wanted to point out in this episode was envy is so rampant in our culture today, so rampant in all social relationships because our culture is exalting the offended self. Like, it's not a source of shame. It's not a source of embarrassment. It's, you know, you write back that company and you angrily demand this and you post this online and, like, you know, offense is, like, a right. Yes. You know, not not a source of embarrassment in, in our culture. And one last thought. I was also struck by the English poet George Herbert says, to be in both worlds full is more than God was, who was hungry here. So referring to the life of Jesus and and foxes have you know holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's saying, whoa, 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 hang on, appetite, hang on, self. You actually don't get fullness in this life. You get gifts, you get grace, you get generosity, but to demand fullness will set you up for a thousand horrible things, including envy of just, they have a house, why don't I have a house? They have a wife, why don't I have a wife? They have kids who love God, why don't I have kids who love God? And like, whoa, 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 just hang on, hang on. Remember that riches beyond your wildest imagination are yours in the coming kingdom. And this life is actually not about everyone being full all the time. We have to pause there. So much more to say. You've been listening to the Ransom Heart Podcast with John and Blaine Eldridge talking in a series on envy.